Welcome back. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary today. We have been having a really fantastic conversation with Jay Ashcroft, the Secretary of State, uh, about a legal dispute that just in the last week or so was resolved uh, against uh, Mr. Ashcroft regarding the ballot language that he had put together for the abortion initiatives uh, that that activists would like to circulate. Uh, Jay, I apologize again for eating up so much of the time in the previous segment. No worries. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of respond. In the previous segment, for listeners who are just now joining us, uh, we read some of the language from uh, the Missouri statute that governs these kinds of challenges. And the question, and maybe the, the disagreement that, that Jay and I have, is whether courts are authorized to rewrite language if they decide that the language the Secretary of State put forward was unfair or insufficient. So, Jay, tell us what you think on this. Well, the first thing is, whether or not they're authorized to, I don't think it's a good thing for courts to do. Okay. Because it involves them in a more political process than we want courts to be involved in. Secondly, the statute you read said that they certify the language. Yeah. Um, there is another statute that specifically tells the Secretary of State to write the language and then also requires the Secretary of State in a different section to certify the language. Um, statutorily, certification of the language and actually writing the language are treated as different things. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, even if you think that, okay, it's okay for the court to do it, they have the authority to do it, I think we should all agree that if the courts are going to do that, they should explain why the language they disagreed with, and then they should follow a least change process to the language. Here, if you look at the original decision, the court never once cited to the initiative petition language. The court never once said... You're talking about the, the opinion that Judge Beatham wrote? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Never once said, here's what uh, this paragraph says, here's why this language is incorrect. So even if they have the right to do it, which it seems to me the statute clearly said the secretary should do it, I think there are good reasons to say the same person should not be writing it, certifying it, and adjudicating over it if there are concerns, because I, I like the whole idea of separation of powers. Mm -hmm. But if they're, even if they have the ability to do that, they should explain why they did it instead of just waving a magic wand to do that. And there was never once uh, a portion of the decision at, in Beatham's decision where he said, here's what the language says. He never once says and does not infringe on that person's autonomous decision making and explains what that means if it doesn't stop any restrictions on health from, uh, from occurring. And, you know, not to belabor a dead horse, but that doesn't require someone to say that's wrong. If we had a law that said every abortion clinic had to be within 200 miles of a hospital in case there was a, a medical problem, mm -hmm. I think most people would say that that's reasonable. But if there is one place in the state that's more than 200 miles away from the hospital, then that law infringes on the ability of a person to autonomously decide, I want to get my abortion there. And under the plain language of this, and it, you've got to go by what it says, that would be thrown out. I think, I think that's a, a very reasonable and understandable argument that you made. Um, <laughs> I, one of the other one of the other issues that I think is raised by this is the courts basically said that they felt like your summary of the initiatives was unfair, and what I think they were focusing on is um, that the fact that that you called abortion dangerous 
Um, and well, I didn't call abortion dangerous. I said that under this change, it would allow dangerous, unregulated abortions. Yeah, that's right. So, so let's let's read the the summary statements that uh, that yeah. you had put out. Uh, it says, "Do you want the Missouri Constitution to allow for dangerous?" unregulated and unrestricted abortions from conception to live birth without requiring a medical license or potentially being subject to medical malpractice uh, to nullify longstanding Missouri law protecting the right to life, including but not uh, limited to partial birth abortion and to allow for laws to be enacted regulating abortion procedures after fetal viability while guaranteeing the right of any woman, including a minor, to end the life of their unborn child at any time and to require the government not to discriminate against persons providing or obtaining an abortion, potentially including taxpayer funding. So that's right. that's the language that you crafted. Um, I happen to agree that perhaps this was not fair language, even though it is accurate, at least in significant part. Um, so so I think that that ideally in this situation, um, what the what the Secretary of State would do is uh, offer a straightforward description um, that does not necessarily editorialize. And I like you very much, Jay. I feel like the and we agree on abortion, but I I feel like the language that you chose there was rather editorial. And so I I How certainly so? understand. Well, um, it it makes a lot of leaps that I think. Uh, certainly for those of us who agree on the on the matter of abortion and believe that it should not be legal, um, you know, might be well-founded, but would not necessarily um, comply with the perspectives of people who disagree with us on the question of abortion more generally. Um, well, and I'm so, not supposed to write the language in the way that people agree or disagree with it like. I'm well, supposed to write it in a way that's accurate. Or and fair. some of the very fair, I think, is the is the crucial word here. And well, then then let's define what fair means, because it's a lot easier to define accurate. Fair seems to be very subjective also. Ah, but that's the word that's used in the statute is fair. And and so I think we so what have does fair to, mean? We have to wrestle with that. Uh well I think I think that fair means that you are focused on um an impartial assessment of the initiative and and its effects okay and, where was i impartial was i impartial when i said right to life because that language is actually in the law that is defined in statute and i am required according to court proceedings and and prior holdings to say what would change i went directly to statute and said this is there this would change and the courts have said that i should use language directly from statute well i don't think that right to life is the controversial point here i i think well, the, 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 the um, i'm sorry but judge beatham said it was <laughs> well, in that, in that case, I disagree, I disagree with Judge Beatham on that he point, too. The right to life was wrong. Well, that is, yeah. and the courts have held that. Um, well, I think, I think the, the parts of the judicial decisions that I tend to agree with yep. is that even though, again, I am pro-life, I think that phrasing the ballot statement so that it, it says that it would allow for dangerous, unregulated, and unrestricted but abortions. Would it? I'm not sure that it would. And we talked about that in one of the earlier segments. I understand how you can come to the conclusion that it might. Um, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it would. 
Do you um, remember Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania? I do not. Okay, Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania was an abortionist. He was convicted on over 200 counts, um, uh, at least four homicides. He was given life in prison without uh, the possibility of parole as an abortionist for what he had done. Under this constitutional amendment, he would have been completely innocent of any judicial review, civil or criminal. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I I think that my reading of the initiative... You you, you don't agree when it says, no person shall be penalized, prosecuted, or otherwise subjected to adverse action based on their actual potential perceived or alleged pregnancy outcomes, nor shall any person assisting a person in exercising their right to reproductive freedom with that person's consent be penalized, prosecuted, or otherwise subjected to adverse action for doing so? It's in black letter. It says you cannot do that. I'm not making that up. What I would say is if people don't like the language that we wrote for the summary, the problem was not that our summary was inaccurate. It was accurate. The problem is they don't like what the initiative petition allows. But it's not for me to change the initiative petition. It is for the people of this state to file what they want there and then for the people to decide whether or not they want to approve it out of vote if it collects enough signatures. Where I disagree with you on that, I think that the language you just quoted is modified by the fact that these petitions would allow regulation um, either after 24 months or under other circumstances where there is the compelling governmental interest that they describe. And so I believe that the uh, likely the outcome of this is that regulations, as long as they are focused on the health of the mother, um, likely would be upheld, even under the, sa- uh, the standard. Now, again, I agree with you that there is language in there that would allow for courts potentially to have the impact that you're describing i don't think it's the likely outcome and i'm not sure that that's um a a fair description of what the uh of the initiative would do that's that's where i think you and i disagree on this then how come the proponents couldn't point to a single health rule guideline or statute that would be constitutional under this the proponents the ones that know this language better than anyone else that wrote it that were standing in front of the court and saying, no, this wouldn't outlaw all restrictions uh, with regard to the health of the mother, why couldn't they name a single one that would be allowed? I think that that is a strategic problem for them. Um, I don't know, but, but, but their, their interpretation of their own initiative does not necessarily uh, guide or bind the courts in applying the interpretation. Or rather, in, in implying the language that's being created. We can created. agree on that. I'm not even yeah. sure the court is ever bound by the language, but that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Well, Jay, one of the, we, we've got just a couple of minutes left, but one of the Sorry. things that, that I want to reiterate is how much I appreciate being able to talk to you and have this kind of a disagreement where we can disagree respectively. I think that this is something that our country and our state really needs is is examples of people who like each other very much but when we disagree on issues we're able to um keep it very civil 
and and have a thoughtful conversation about it without descending into name calling and mud throwing. I think that that's such a tendency these days is if someone disagrees with you on anything, then all of a sudden they're the enemy. Um, and I just I love and respect the fact that that we can have these conversations, we can have these disagreements and still be good friends. Um, and so I want to thank you for being willing to engage in this conversation, um, because I think that it's uh, an example of what our country is supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to have these conversations and then let people who listen in decide for themselves who had the better side of this argument. And then they can make their political decisions based on um, their assessment of the conversation. I hate to admit this, but arguing with you forces me to do a better job in my arguments. And I applaud you for that. Well, and, and that is what I aspire to. Jay, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you for sticking around for an extra segment. I appreciate you, man. Sounds great. Thanks, man. Have All a great Thanksgiving. You too. Talk to you later. All right. So Jay is uh, signing off. We're going to come back. We have got uh, another great caller coming in at the end of the show or rather at the at the bottom of the hour. Uh, so I hope you'll stick around for that. In the meantime, we're going to have some commercials. Uh, but this is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. And uh, we are going to throw it to Brian Houseworth real quick. He's got an update on a traffic situation. Yes, Dave. Thank you so much. And you're doing a fabulous job as always hosting. We appreciate it. Uh, just a heads up. I just received a call from a listener. And I've just gotten off the phone with the Highway Patrol as well and confirmed this. But, Dave, we have a uh, – it's a crash. At least two vehicles involved westbound I-70. Uh, basically at the Calwood area, Calwood exit, which is east of Kingdom City. This is westbound. Both lanes were shut down, we believe, for about an hour. The patrol's not 100% sure how long both lanes were shut down, but the accident happened about 8.50. They have just reopened one lane. Now, the listener who just called me told me that traffic is backed up and his friend has been stuck also in traffic as far as the eye can see. The patrol does confirm long backups. One vehicle or one lane is open, Dave, westbound I-70, but both lanes were closed earlier. So basically, if you're heading from, let's say, Columbia to St. Louis, you are going to be stuck in traffic. I would encourage people to maybe take an alternative route or at least give themselves extra time. Dave, that again is east of Kingdom City in Callaway County uh, near the Calwood exit. Dave. Okay, thanks so much for that update, Thank Brian. I, I appreciate it. And boy, we hope everyone's okay in that. Yes. Um, so, we just had a, a fantastic conversation with uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. We've got another fun conversation coming up uh, at the bottom of the hour. Uh, but, uh, one issue that I wanted to talk about while we've got just a few minutes is uh, the personal property tax. I don't know about you, but uh, I got my tax bill in the mail uh, just in, in the last couple of weeks, and it is just a, a kick in the teeth every year. Every year. You oh, know, come on, Dave. We have to have this. Uh, it's the price of a, of a civil society. Is that? Is yeah, that, pretty uh, much. Uh -huh. No. We don't have any other way to fund public schools. So we have to just, just accept goodness. it. And, so, uh, you so, know, you, know you, you go out and um, I, am, I am currently looking for uh, potentially a, a newer car. Uh, I've been driving my car since 2007. Uh, and so I think it's about time. Uh, to to get something different to drive around with, uh, but one of the things I have to factor in, yes, when I'm considering buying a new car, is that's going to increase my taxes. Every yeah, year. not just the sales tax; you're going to have to pay at time it, of purchase. That's but the point I was aiming each at. Each yeah. and every year, you're going to get a bill from 
Boone County telling you that you owe, you know, this amount of money on this used car. Yeah, I, I won't get the bill from Boone County. I'll get it from Audrain County, but Audrain yes. Audrain County, yeah. Yeah, so, so I go out and I spend presumably thousands of dollars to buy a new car. I pay tax, sales tax, on the price of that new car. And then I turn around and I get taxed again <laughs> every single year. Does uh, that make sense in no. any society? I no. mean, and if it, if someone says it does, then they can also justify sending you a bill each year for the appliances that you own in your home. Come on. Yeah. This is just as ridiculous. So, uh, as longtime listeners of the show will know, Gary and I quixotically put together an initiative that would have eliminated personal property tax in Missouri. Uh, but our, our timing was unfortunate, Brian. Um, we right, ended up right at the uh, beginning <laughs> we were of putting COVID. this together in late 2019 and early 2020, and then the pandemic hit. And one of the things that you have to do in order to get an issue on the ballot is you have to have signatures, and it's impossible to gather signatures when everybody's in lockdown. And so um, our our quixotic effort to get this on the ballot in 2020 was unsuccessful. And in any event, it was always going to be a challenge because the number of signatures you have to get is is huge. And not only that, you have to get uh, a certain number of signatures in a certain number of congressional districts. It's very complex. And it's usually quite expensive. But I have a brilliant plan, Brian. Do you? I do. I have a brilliant plan. What we need to do the next time we are pushing for this initiative we need to get volunteers in every county in the state, every county, and then in the two weeks after the tax bills go out, have the volunteers go and sit outside the courthouses and gather signatures. Because people will come down to the courthouses to pay their tax bills, and they're going to be angry about these personal property tax bills. Right. They're going to be ready to sign an initiative that says, we want to amend the Constitution to eliminate the personal property tax. And I think yeah. that's how we manage to get the signatures that we need without having to raise a couple million dollars. Is there another way to do it without having to put it on the ballot? Couldn't you legislatively have a person in Jeff City say, hey, this is the bill to eliminate personal property tax for the state of Missouri? Yeah, that, that is another way of coming at it. Each jurisdiction will re be responsible for raising their own taxes for their own schools. You figure it out. Yeah. Instead of just saying, hey, this is the way we do it, and there's no other way, so just accept it. It's just, it's horrible. Yeah, it, And it you're comes right. at the worst time of the year for everyone. The, the reason that Gary and I were going the initiative route is because as of right now, there has not been political will in the legislature to adopt this kind of a provision and refer it to the people for a vote. Um, I would love it if we could get a critical mass in the legislature of uh, folks who are willing to say, you know what, let's give the people the option of amending their constitution in this way. But as of right now, we still don't have that critical mass of political will in the legislature, nope. and that, that leaves it to the citizens. And that, my car depreciated in value and my personal property tax bill went up, just oh, so you know. Crazy. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean. So anyway, people, keep that in your hip pocket. It may be that in the next couple of years, Gary and I come back 
and we start talking again about this idea of an initiative to end the personal property tax. Keep your ears open. We are headed into another break. On the other side, we're going to have Martha Zoller, uh, a talk show host down in Georgia, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about the Trump trials down there. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Gary Nolan Show. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show today. One of the great joys of getting to come and fill in for Gary is that uh, sometimes he lines up uh, guests for the show that I'm not familiar with the guests before we have the conversation. And so it's always fun to get to meet and talk to really, really smart people. And that is the case with our next guest. guest. Uh, I believe it's Martha Zoller. Is it Zoller or Zeller, Martha? It's Zoller. Zoller. Ah, I, I was wrong on both counts. Strike three, right. you're out. I know. Okay, Zoller. Well, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show. Would you give listeners a little bit of background about uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I was a business person in the business world and uh, was staying home with kids. And I, uh, Hillary Clinton said she could have stayed home and baked cookies. And so I called in to talk radio for the first time. And this was back in the 90s. And I... Um, one thing led to another, and I ended up being a talk radio host. And over the last uh, close to 30 years, I've done different kinds of talk radio. I ran for Congress. I've worked for a United States senator and helped him get elected. I've worked for a governor and helped them get elected. There are some people that say I can't keep a job. But I am currently <laughs> now uh, working back in radio, doing what I love, what what is just connecting with people. So I enjoy um, what I do, and I'm blessed to be able to do it right here in America. So what I hear you saying is you're going to help me carry the entire rest of the show for the next hour and a half, right? <laughs> that, that's what I hear well, you saying? Well, you got one segment. One segment. <laughs> okay. Well, with that one segment, go ahead and jump in. What What is the most important thing that you would like to talk about today? Well, I think there's. I think it's really we're we're pre Thanksgiving, and so it's gratitude that right if you look at the world and and you just are on social media or you're watching Fox News or whatever it is, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. But if you put your phone down for a minute and you think about things, you go, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the world. Yeah. And while we need to be truthful about the bad things. Uh, you know, the rise in anti-Semitism is shocking me. Uh, the issues that we have related to uh, trials against a political candidate are big issues. But we got to start thinking at ground level how to put families back together again. And I, that starts with gratitude. That's what I've been thinking about today. I think that is a fantastic observation. Uh, one of my favorite political commentators uh, is a guy named Greg Easterbrook. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Um, he used to write for a number of national publications, and he was a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, but one of the things that he frequently emphasizes is how much better the world is now than it was just a couple of decades ago, and people completely lose sight of that. Um, you know, he points out the lowering rates of poverty across the globe. He points out, um, you know, the the incredible technological innovations that we have and how they have made life in so many ways much easier than they are. But that gets countered by the journalistic impulse to highlight the negative. Um, you know, the, the old phrase is, if it bleeds, it leads. And so that's why so much of what we see in the news um, does tend to be negative and not 
focused on the things that are getting better constantly in our world and in our country. And I, I think you're absolutely right to kind of highlight the importance of, you know, sitting back sometimes and appreciating and showing gratitude for the things that are going well. One, one thing that jumped out to me um, is although people talk about um, the crime rate, and indeed there are certainly parts of the country where um, violent crime remains a significant problem, compared to a few decades ago, um, the violent crime rate is much, much lower than than it used to be. And that's something that we should all certainly be thankful for. Um, do, do, do you, you have right anything in that, particular that, that, that you, yeah. in the 90s, you're right, it was much higher in the 90s oh, than yeah. what it is today. And the biggest difference is social media. I think that you yeah. see it more often if you're on social media. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right about that. Even though violent crime is way up in the cities right now, it's still less than it was in the early 90s. Yeah. So social media, I think, is is one of those things that is such a mixed blessing. I, I frequently talk about how I love the fact that through Facebook in particular, I'm able to keep in touch with, you know, the kids that I grew up. I grew up in, in Alabama. And so now I'm up living in Missouri. I don't live near anybody that I grew up with, but I can keep in touch with them in a way that would have been completely impossible 20 years ago. And and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but there is also this downside. Um, I, I don't imagine you were listening in earlier in the show, but I have my 11-year-old daughter in the studio with me today. And she was telling me just this last week about... Um, one of her friends being upset that she had talked to somebody online that had these opinions and, and uh, was engaged in things that she really, really didn't like. And I said, well, how do you know this person? Or how does her friend know this person? She says, well, just online. I said, so this is not someone who's in their life every day? Then why do they care? Like, if, if this is not someone who is part of your day-to-day -day life, why do their opinions and their attitudes upset you so much and, and i think that that's part of the problem with social media is that we're exposed to so many more perspectives from people that we don't have any real world connection to and we do let it upset us and we do let it frustrate us um when when maybe maybe we shouldn't well god bless you for having to navigate this with an 11 year old i right know now. Right? um i am my children are grown they're 30 32 to 42 uh, but they have children of their own. And mm -hmm. so I've got grandchildren that are uh, a year and a half to 10 years old. And so we haven't quite had to do the social media thing yet with them, which I'm sure it's coming with the 10 year old. OK, I yeah. I'm sure it's coming. But um, but we have had things like some of these games they play, like this Pokemon game that will encourage them to interact with people that they don't know. And they can, even though you use the version of the game that doesn't allow that, it's very, e your kids are smarter than you are on this. Stuff. Right. And it's very easy for them to get into it. And we even had a situation where my grandson bought some access and was using my phone, bought some access. And we had to have a little chat about that. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, right. You know, so it's, it's, it's a very challenging time. And it also presents, an unreal version of the world. If you haven't yes. seen the documentary, um, um, uh, social, oh gosh, what is it called? The social, uh, anyway, it's the social network or something like that. Anyway, it's a Netflix documentary about social dilemma. Sorry uh, about yeah, that. the social dilemma. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's how these, these people are manipulating what you see. And um, TikTok's the worst at it. 
Okay. And Facebook, weirdly enough, is the best at it as far as they really got hammered after the 2016 election. And they they adjusted a lot of their privacy stuff and they actually do the better job of it than most do. But you still have to be careful. Yeah. And and again, especially with the kids, you know, and and this is something this is kind of a a constant conversation I have with my daughter. Um, She really wants to be able to play some of these games. And I have told her. No, not until you're older. And and I have emphasized it's not because I don't trust her. It's because um, I am worried that she will be exposed to some of these randos out there um, who are going to introduce ideas or language or, or, you know, just ways of interacting that I don't want her to be exposed to yet. Right. Um, and she keeps saying, oh, but there are parental controls and things like that. And I'm like, you know what? I just don't trust it. I just don't trust it. Um, so we'll get there eventually. You know, she's she's getting to the age level and the maturity level that eventually we will loosen some of the controls that we've got. But for right now, 11 is just too young to be exposed to these kinds of things. Now, so. do you mind me asking, does sure. she have a phone yet? No, not not a phone that uh, she she has an old phone that doesn't have a SIM card. So she can't make phone calls or anything like that. Um, and, and we do not allow her to be on social media. She's allowed to communicate with a handful of friends uh so a a very weird thing that happened and i'm also on the state board of education Mm -hmm. in georgia is that when we were like about 10 years ago when we were all excited about giving kids laptops which i think is a great thing because it does equalize access and all of that Mm -hmm. what happened initially is that they didn't realize that they didn't have enough protections in there to keep kids off of social media and so the kids were smarter than the tech people at the schools and they were, they were, it gave them this access to social media that did the kinds of things you're talking about, got them into places they shouldn't be, got them talking to people they shouldn't be talking to. And this happened in a lot of school systems across the country. They're doing a better job now. Um, COVID fixed, you know, COVID uh, kind of accelerated a lot of these. It certainly made parents aware of, of a lot of these issues. Yes. Yeah. It made parents aware that there were there were those kinds of things happening. But you do have to protect your children. And there's nothing wrong. Like tomorrow at Thanksgiving, our rule at Thanksgiving is your phones get put down unless you're taking a picture. If you're taking a picture of a happy time, then the phone is down Mm -hmm. because I don't want young people burying their head in their phone all day long. Yeah. You know, and and kind of following up on that point, I've, I've seen a little bit recently about schools that have taken like a zero tolerance policy on having phones during the school day and i think that's fantastic um, yeah why do you need a phone during the school day yeah yeah I, so so i would love to see more and more schools adopt this where they they kind of get the 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 technology out of the kids hands during the school day let them focus on real life interaction with their classmates and also focus on what their teachers are instructing them on. Um, I just, I can only see that as a positive development. And so I'm hopeful that, that my kids own schools will, um, will adopt some of those policies going forward. Well, I spoke to an AP government class recently Mm -hmm. and I was encouraged. These are like 16, 17, 18 year olds. I was encouraged that they were talking about how they wanted to put their phones down. They wanted to interact with people more directly that, that they were tired of doing everything on their phone. So hopefully, you know, we've had this little blip (laughs) and that maybe we're getting back to some normalcy because there's a good and a bad side, right? To this, 
being able to hold into your hand more computer technology than what took us to the moon. Right. There is some there is a good side to that because you have access to information, but there's also a bad side to that. You have access to information. True story, true story. Well, hey, Martha, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your time with us. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh but we are going to have to go into another commercial break. I'm sure you understand, but uh I do. this this has been Martha Zoller uh, coming in and, and talking to us. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan. We've got uh, about another hour and 15 minutes. I hope folks will listen and call in. The number is 1-800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, I have mentioned a couple of times that we love to have callers on this show. If you would like to call in, the number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. Or and in fact, we have got a caller. Let's go to Rick calling in from Hallsville. How are you doing this morning, Rick? Good. You know, I noticed in your conversation with Jay Ashcroft that two times in that legislation or that proposal, yeah, the initiative they defended, they defended what was good, but then in the third place they nullified everything. And I noticed in that that probably more than a year ago, a lady who ran for the House of Representatives from St. Charles, the law that you defended stated that she was capable or that the government had to give her a hearing within 10 days. But three pages later, it nullified her right to that. And I don't know why lawyers want to do these things, but uh, you all make things to where they're if you will, de facto. Okay. Yeah, so uh, so you're referring to Allie Grafe, uh, who had run for, for Congress, and, uh, and she filed an election contest, and the rule for an election contest is that there is supposed to be a hearing within a very short time span, and um, the election contest is supposed to take priority on the docket. The docket is what we call kind of the the court's order of consideration. And so uh, an election contest is supposed to immediately be kicked up to uh, the top of, of a court's docket so that it can get resolved quickly. Um, and the the statute involved, you're right, does require um, that hearing to take place quickly. And she did not get that. And I, I do not defend the court declining to give her that hearing the big issue that i had with miss grace lawsuit and and listeners may recall when i was guest hosting the show uh, what was it about a year ago maybe I, I can't remember exactly when but it was it was several months ago um i invited her on the show to discuss why i yes, thought that yeah I, I invited her on to discuss why i disagreed with what she was proposing essentially she wasn't arguing that the she wasn't arguing that she actually won the election. Uh, if I recall, she came in fourth place. She got um, maybe 100, 200 votes out of more than 1,000 cast. She no, wished out of to several expose voter fraud. Yes. So she was, she was focused on the idea that the use of electronic voting devices, in her opinion, was illegal. 
and and that that meant that the entire election should be thrown out. I disagreed with her reading of the law on that, and specifically, I disagreed that um, an election contest was the appropriate vehicle for what she was wanting to do. Um, and she was very very unhappy with me that I disagreed with her, but I was just you know I was reading the statutes to the best of my ability and telling her. This is how the courts are going to view it, and your lawsuit is doomed to fail. And um, ultimately, my, my prediction proved to be correct, and she is still angry with me about that. Uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, uh, she and one of her friends went on a, a conservative group on Facebook and started blasting me. Um, and I said, basically, look, don't shoot the messenger. I'm, <laughs> I was just telling you what the courts were going to do, and my prediction ended up being correct. Uh, but, but, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Rick? No, uh, that was about it. I'd like for you to, you spoke about the American dollar being a de facto dollar. and I'm uh, A de facto, de facto world currency. Yeah, so, so the American dollar is basically uh, a good mechanism for buying and selling things all over the world. So you can go to countries all over the world and offer American currency to purchase goods and they'll accept it um, because the dollar is perceived as being a very stable currency, whereas other types of currency um, are much more volatile in their valuation. Uh, people do not trust the governments that oversee those other currencies. Um, and so so that puts the United States at a distinct advantage when it comes to um, you know, the way that our currency is used and viewed worldwide. Now, one important thing that I think should be pointed out is there's no guarantee that that's going to remain the case. Um, I think that um, the Federal Reserve has dramatically mismanaged the American dollar, uh, which is part of the reason that we have had inflation in the last couple of, like extreme inflation in the last couple of years. Um, and it's also part of the reason that the United States credit rating continues to drop and and we may well, if we don't restore some fiscal sanity um, at the the national level, we may well lose our status as kind of a de facto world currency. Um, but for the time being, that continues to hold. And, and by and large, um, that's a very positive thing for Americans. And it may also turn out to be a positive thing for nations right. that pin their own national currency's value to the United States dollar. The word de facto, though, means perceived to be lawful, whereas de jure is absolutely lawful. And so you... Well, de jure means governed by law. De facto means in practice. And so when I use the word de facto or the term de facto, I mean that in practice, this is the way things tend to go even though it is not mandated by any particular law. Uh, we are having to head into another commercial break. Thank you so much for calling in, Rick. I appreciate it. Uh, so we are going into the final hour of the show. Uh, I have some matters that are of interest to me that I intend to talk about. But if there are issues that are, that are of interest to you that you'd like to talk about, call in. The number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Rowland on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 